Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with Annie Laurie Gaylor, co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Annie Laurie Gaylor is the co-president of the Freedom from Religion Foundation and co-founded the organization back in 1978 with her mother, Ann Gaylor. I asked her about growing up in a non-religious environment. I'm lucky enough not to have grown up in a religious environment. I'm a third-generation freethinker on my mother's side of the family. And her father, um, she did not know her mother because she died when she was two. Her father's attitude toward religion was one of embarrassment. When people would start talking about religion, he would get very embarrassed for them. And my mother grew up and felt that was the right attitude. And in fact, uh, we go way back on her maternal side to George Soule, who came over on the Mayflower, not as a pilgrim, but as a tutor. Hmm. And my twin brother, Ian, was doing some research, and George, George Soule's wife and some of their children were fined uh, for not attending church on Wednesdays. So it was in the records. It was in the um, pilgrim records. And so I think that we don't have a God gene on various sides of the family. And my father uh, was brought up in a very religious household, but it never took. So apparently he didn't have a God gene either. And he was brought up in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in Springfield, Missouri, and was not impressed with the hypocrisy in the church, very racist environment in the 1930s. And they would preach love on Sundays and then turn around and do terrible things the rest of the week. And for him, the final straw was a full body immersion when he was 12 in front of the congregation. And for for him, that was it. Mm -hmm. So my parents both agreed that children should be brought up free from religion, that they were not, they were too young to be uh, exposed to very um, inappropriate ideas like original sin, uh, hellfire, um, damnation that we should be allowed to grow up free from that. And when we were old enough to understand these religious abstractions, then we could decide for ourselves. So they were very anti-indoctrination. And in that same vein, um, we were not indoctrinated to be atheists. We knew my parents were not religious, that they were irreverent, that they would kind of chuckle about things, you know, just as you know how your parents feel about everything, but they didn't sit down and lecture us or, um, in any way indoctrinate us in atheism. We called ourselves agnostics when I was growing up. And um, when I was in fifth grade, uh, I was very interested in religious debates because for some reason we always talked about religion in art class Hmm. in my elementary school in the 1960s. And although I was always the only little non-religious child in the class, the general um, tenure was to be envious of me because I didn't have to go to church on Sundays. But they would also say they'd be surprised because I was a good girl. Hmm. I was soft-spoken and I didn't make any trouble and I got good grades and how could I not be religious? There was still that, how can you be good without God um, myth that was still out there that somehow um, you couldn't be a good girl and, and be an, a, a little agnostic. But for the most part, children seem to feel rather envious of me that I didn't have to dress up and go to church on Sundays, which more people did in the 1960s. It was sort of expected. 
So in the fifth grade, um, when we had these debates in in art class, uh, I would come to my mother and, and talk about it. And so she introduced me to Bertrand Russell, to one of his essays uh, explaining religion and why he wasn't a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love with Bertrand Russell at that point in his writings and became very, very interested in free thought at that point pretty early. But I came to it on my own. Mm-hmm. And my mother provided some interesting reading once she realized I was interested in that, just as she did about feminism. So the other kids growing up were actually envious of you, because that's a pleasant surprise. I've heard many stories from people growing up non-religious who were treated very badly by their fellow students. So the fact that the other kids were envious is surprising. Well, it's surprising. And again, I had that reputation as being a good girl, not being a troublemaker, and I was very quiet and... um, I don't know, there was no ostracism, but certainly I also knew that I was the only non-religious girl in my class. Finally, in the sixth grade, there was another little girl um, that most of the kids in the school were religious, and I knew that. Uh, But I had the same feeling about them as I did when I would hear children, even into the fourth grade, talk about believing in Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. And that reaction was one of embarrassment and kind of pity for them, thinking, oh, their parents have pulled the wool over their <laughs> eyes to the point where they're publicly embarrassing themselves at being 10 years old and believing in Santa. So I just, you know, I felt that they, my attitude was it's not their fault that someone's indoctrinated them. Um, but mm-hmm. I did always, I did not have friends in my school who were non-religious, but my, I had um, good friends, my um, first cousin and their whole family was non-religious I had a next-door neighbor who was Jewish whose grandchildren would come and visit, and I was very good friends with one of the little girls and saw her a lot, and their family was agnostic. So I didn't really feel totally alone. But we would have a lot of debates about religion over the years with my school friends. Can you tell me a little bit about the founding of FFRF? Because your mother, you founded it with your mother, Ann Gaylor. Can you tell me a little bit more about her and what caused her to have this passion? Yes, and I was going to say that I kind of like to joke that I was like a secular Pippa. If you know that um, Browning poem, God's in his heavens, all, all's right with the world. Mm-hmm. It's about a little girl, Pippa. I felt like a secular Pippa. God wasn't in his heaven, all was right with my world. But in <laughs> fact, that world was drenched with religion. I mean, I was as free from religion as anybody can be growing up in a religion-drenched culture, which is not that free. And what I didn't realize, and even my parents didn't realize, is that I was born in the middle of the 1950s in uh, a decade in which so many symbolic violations were adopted by Congress that have really tilted our country to the religious right. And I have ended up spending most of my life trying to repeal or fight some of these violations, especially the congressional violations that were passed about the year that I was born. So it's kind of ironic. And I remember coming home in the fifth grade. My my mother was a, quote, working mother. She was the only working mother I knew. All the other mothers were at home. Hmm. And, of course, they were working, but that's what we used to call them. Mm-hmm. But she was in between jobs, and she happened to be home at lunch. And for some reason, I don't know why, I was inspired to put my hand over my heart and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And I still remember the shock. that, And she kind of gasped. 
And she had not known that the Pledge of Allegiance had been tampered with by Congress. You know, she was busy having babies and running businesses in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like something that was on the front page of the paper that Congress had meddled with the secular Pledge of Allegiance and inserted the words under God, you know, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all, is how she had grown up learning the pledge. I had grown up learning it with the under God, you know, dividing our one nation indivisible. And that, I mean, I still remember that moment because my mother was a very gentle person and always so positive. And it was um, startling to me. And then she explained, she explained that's not the way she there was no god in the pledge of allegiance when she was a little girl Mm -hmm. and so um that just sort of took root but uh when i was in middle school she had um she and my my father and mother had um she had sold a successful business and she had wanted to get into newspaper publishing and they bought a suburban newspaper in a very catholic community middleton wisconsin that's just a bedroom community outside Madison. And she was always making waves. It was a weekly paper. And in 1960, I think it was 68 or so, 67 or 68, she wrote the first editorial in the whole state of Wisconsin um, calling for legalizing abortion. And at that point, her phone never stopped ringing. Women called wanting referrals and other people called wanting to work with her. And of course, the Middleton residents called complaining, <laughs> canceling subscriptions. And um, from that point on, that really hurtled her into pro-choice activism. And she was on the national board of NARAL, Pro-Choice America, which at that point, NARAL stood for National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws because abortion laws were all criminal. Mm-hmm. And they had to change the acronym after Roe v. Wade. And she founded the um, Wisconsin Committee to Legalize Abortion, the Madison chapter, Wisconsin Committee to Legalize Abortion, and, and got involved with the zero population growth. And soon was running an abortion sterilization birth control referral service where she was referring women um, to Mexico at that time. Wow. And um, because abortion was illegal. And I was following her around the state. She was speaking and on radio and TV. She was really crusading for abortion rights and was a very prominent, very well-known activist. And it was very exciting for me to trail around after her. And we both became very aware um, that religion was the problem. We would go to the state capitol when they would have hearings to legalize contraception for unmarried people and uh, abortion, and it would be absolutely filled with nuns and priests in Boston, parochial school children. And all of the statements to the legislature were couched in religion. So we could see that it was organized religion that was the opposition to women's rights and that it should never, dogma should never be enshrined in our secular laws. So it was that experience that opened our eyes to the need to work to buttress um, the wall of separation between church and state. It could have been something else, Chris. It could have been gay rights or science. We could have encountered creationism. Mm-hmm. But for us, it was it was the um, feminist movement that woke us up to this harm. And then my mother was kind of a feminist gadfly and very well-known um, activist on the state level um, and in many areas. Um, she did a lot of things, but she came to realize that 
that women would never win this battle if we didn't get to the root cause, which was religion. Mm -hmm. So she decided to put her energies that way. And we were thinking about this concept of freedom from religion, that it was nice, it would have been nice if the founders had been a little more explicit, you know, that this um, establishment clause of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion uh, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, has been misunderstood by a lot of modern Americans. Um, they didn't understand what that establishment meant. And we realized that freedom from religion is part of freedom of religion. You can't have freedom of religion if you don't have the freedom from religion from government mm -hmm. or the, the freedom to dissent from religion. You can't dissent from religion once you have religion and government. So we've been banding that about, and um, when we happened to become aware that they were praying, opening um, Dane County, Wisconsin County Board meetings and City Council meetings in Madison, Wisconsin, with clergy-led prayer, hmm. Christian prayer, and we were very affronted, and we thought we should do something about it. And we realized if we went in as a mother-daughter team, at this point I was a college student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, that we would seem rather weak. And so we decided to call ourselves something, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And that's really how it was born. Um, we had an elderly friend in Milwaukee that I don't know how my mother met him, but he was kind enough to lend his name as our third member so that we really would be legit. His name was John Sontark, and he died within the year, but uh, was very kind. And so we could go in and actually say we were a group. And it made often, not if not the banner front page, it was it made news in both of our daily newspapers. And we soon had people calling us asking to join this Freedom from Religion Foundation. And that was in 1976. And in 1978, my mother was asked to go national with the organization. And so we're having our 40th anniversary year, and our anniversary date was uh, April 15, April 5, uh, 1978. So you actually started it around your dining room table, is that right? Yes, uh, my mother had started several groups around the dining room table, and um, she died uh, several years ago, and we made sure that the dining room table is now part of our building here at FFRF. Our building is called Free Thought Hall. And so we still use that table. It's in our um, lunchroom reception room and um, still doing some scheming and work behind it. But uh, she had also started the Women's Medical Fund Abortion Rights Charity, which is continuing, which is an all-volunteer group paying for abortions for indigent women or um, uh, working poor women in the state of Wisconsin. And we've helped, we helped over a thousand women last year. So wow. some of, many of her, um, Baby groups have matured and are continuing, and she, she um, started a lot of things that are continuing today. How have things at FFRF changed over the years since you started it in the late 70s? We have gone from all volunteer to having a paid staff of 25. We were a dining room table operation that was just operating out of my parents' home to moving into very small digs um, to buying our building in 1990, and it was a two-story two um, building in 1855 in downtown Madison. And several years ago, we completed a major addition. We added a five-story um, building and quadrupled our, our space and added a small studio and an auditorium and a, a real library and plenty of room for our legal staff. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we've gone from the original three of us to over 32,000 members in North America, current members in North America. Um, we were litigating from the beginning, um, but I was um, doing a retrospective for our newspaper, Free Thought Today, that that um, is in, in our April issue, and realized how many cases we had taken. We've taken, um, I actually miscounted at one point, we've taken over 83 cases, and we've won about two-thirds of them. And um, we have about 13 ongoing lawsuits, and we've won rounds for more than two-thirds of those, but they're on appeal. So, um, you know, we, we went from all volunteer to now professional, and um, it's, it's been a, a, a big growth in recent years and a necessary growth because the challenges that we face in promoting free thought, representing atheists and agnostics, and um, defending that wall of separation are so daunting. Um, mm-hmm. And we're, you know, we're one of several national groups, but there are churches taxes on practically every other corner, and the religious right is in control of our government right now. So um, this is just the beginning. Do you think technology has made activism easier, or has it been more difficult because of the influx of people to make your job even harder as well at the same time? Oh, I think there's no question that the internet has been a huge boon for the free thought movement because people can connect so much more quickly. In in the old days, people used to have to go to the library or possibly call their librarian and consult a book called the Encyclopedia of Associations in order to find us. Mm-hmm. And everything was done by mail or by phone. And so it's so much more immediate. So I think that, of course, the internet has been a great boon for the free thought movement. And, um, of course, it's for me, the email gets to be a little bit overwhelming. My hours seem to be longer and longer trying to keep up with stuff. But, no, there's no question that the Internet has been um, – has really helped. And I think it is one of the reasons why we have seen so many more uh, people become free thinkers in the United States. You know, we used to see such uh, – maybe 9% of people identifying in some ways non-religious – now we see 24% of adults identifying as nuns, you know, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, not necessarily as atheists or agnostics, but as not having a religion, and 38% of millennials. And then the great new stat is that 21 to 22% of Generation Z kids born after 1999 explicitly identify as atheist or agnostic. And the information is so much more readily available. And if they're brought up in a religious household, it's so much easier to find information. You used to have to go down to the library, and the only book you could find was invariably Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. That was about it, mm-hmm. an outlook. So uh, things have changed um, for the better. It's never been a better time to be non-religious in the United States. Uh, where free thought is in flower. But from a legal point of view, of course, things are getting riskier in terms of going to court. What's the most challenging thing, do you think, about your job? FFRF has two purposes. There would be two challenges. One of our purposes is to educate the public about non-theism. So we serve as what we believe is the, the nation's largest association of explicitly atheist or agnostic people. Not necess- I don't know what the humanist memberships are, but for atheism agnosticism. And then we work to keep religion out of government. So the challenge with 
atheism and agnosticism is this continuing myth uh, or bugaboo that you cannot be good without God, that you cannot be a moral person, that society would fall apart without religion, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. if it's religious, it must be good. And so, therefore, if you're not religious, you must be bad. We still see these very ignorant, even bigoted assumptions made, and that's um, very hard to overcome. And we're constantly trying to educate uh, on this, but it's very ingrained in a lot of believers that you cannot have a good society or lead a good life unless you're religious. And uh, for the state church part of it, of course, the hardest thing to overcome is the packing of the courts by Trump right now. But before that, we have seen um, a huge sea change with much more conservative members of the Supreme Court and um, more conservative members of the federal judiciary. And unfortunately, not enough appointments made um, under Obama. I think he could have been much more proactive in his early term when he had an all-democratic Congress behind him, and I think he was concentrating so much on Obamacare. Mm -hmm. And then um, in his second term, he was, of course, thwarted in Congress, and I think it's terrible um, what Congress did in refusing to hold hearings for his replacement for Scalia. But that has meant it's been very bad for um, for litigation and it has a very chilling effect. And we live in mortal fear of uh, anybody uh, retiring from the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing the packing of all the other um, lower courts at the federal judiciary, and we are seeing that impact. We just lost a case um, last week. We've been on a real winning streak and been winning everything in the last two years. But um, although it wasn't a it was a partial victory for us. We lost um, part of a lawsuit in the Seventh Circuit in which three of the judges said it's okay to have a, a small nativity scene on stage during your Christmas spectacular concert. We ended a live nativity pageant that had been going on for 45 years with students dressed up like Mary and Joseph and shepherds and teachers reading from the New Testament in an Indiana school. This is outrageous in this wow. area. But then they substituted a, it was a two-minute thing where they substituted a, we call it a dead nativity scene. They brought in mannequins. Hmm. And we felt that that was wrong. And I still think it's wrong. And we got a bad decision, three to zero, including a Democratic appointment writing the decision, saying that they weren't necessarily going to go on record that you couldn't have a nativity scene in a public school. Hmm. So that's rather shocking. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think that um, there's no question that the religious right wants to repeal all of this very firm Supreme Court precedent against religion in the schools. They have said they want to go after it and that if um, Trump is allowed to complete his term or gets reelected, there will be a complete um, takeover of our federal judiciary in terms of, you know, having the majority. The Republicans uh, already dominated um, several of the high courts, but they didn't dominate most of them. And so this is a very great concern. Are you optimistic about what we can do to make these changes? I would not be in this business if I were not an optimist, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always an optimist. (laughs) I mean, we, we measure things carefully. We weigh 
when before we take a lawsuit. Sometimes we take a lawsuit just because you have to, because it's just too outrageous. Not always supposing that we're going to win, but sometimes you're not making anything worse mm-hmm. by taking it. Um, but, um, you know, I'm hoping that this is just a little blip that, but I don't have a crystal ball and uh, mm-hmm. wouldn't believe in them anyway. And so um, I think we just persist and move forward. Wisconsin has a nice state motto, forward, and we've sort of adopted that as our free thought motto, that we just have to move forward. It's interesting for me, I grew up in Seattle in in a very liberal environment, a non-religious environment as well. So similarly to you, a lot of this stuff just seems, you know, completely coming out of left field. You know, it's so foreign to me, like people who want all these, uh, you know, things like nativity scenes and all this stuff in the public schools just seems completely outrageous to me. And, and yet, you know, I've met people from other parts of the country who, who that was normal for them. And it's very strange kind of having these conversations where you know, your experience is so different that it's been so ingrained in many parts of the country that they see it as being normal. Although FFRF is a non-political group and we have people who are Republican and Democratic and apathetic and greens and libertarians i can say from a personal point of view that i believe that uh, trump is is the darling of the religious right that the religious right has completely ceded the moral high ground in backing him that it's completely cynical um, on his part and their part but that his election and his what he's been allowed to do is the result of the dumbing down of our country by religion Mm-hmm. that this wouldn't have happened without religion. And, um, I mean, the religious right is responsible for electing Trump. And um, it'd be nice to think this might be their last death rattle or whatever, but they are not giving up. And so we can't either. But I do think that the chicks have come home to roost in terms of the dumbing down of our country. When you have statistics that almost half the nation Uh, accepts creationism or some form of creationism this is rather awe-inspiring this is you know you can put the wool over um the eyes of somebody who is that ignorant Mm -hmm. um, that they don't care about how ignorant they are how can we compete on a global level um around the, the the world with that kind of ignorance and um, I, I just do think this is the result of our country always being enthralled with religion. From the beginning, our nation has had a lot of religion in it, and early commentators have pointed that out. Um, and very susceptible to these um, born-again movements. And then it's gotten to this point where politicians are afraid to speak up for secularism. They, they feel they have to wear religion on their sleeves in order to get elected. And the whole thing kind of snowballs because then nobody wants to support separation of church and state vocally. And then you get a situation like we have today. It dovetails well into that question of technology we talked about earlier because you're right that it, it's so much easier now for those of us who are atheist activists to spread the message and connect with other people. Um, and at the same time, it's also easier for everybody else spreading misinformation and falsehoods right. to do that as well. And you see that all the time. Well, of course, we're in the in the midst of 
what we don't even know what's going on with the social media and so on and fake news. But we do have a bumper sticker saying religion, the original fake news. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, again, I see much of the problems in our nation stems from uh, bibliolatry, mm -hmm. uh, devotion to the Bible, or devotion to the idea that of religion. Whether people will go to church or not, this idea that we must show obeisance to religion and we mustn't criticize it. And then we mustn't criticize people who do things in the name of religion, like uh, refusing to uh, accept global warming climate change. Um, or wanting to take away women's rights because they're religious. I think that's how we've gotten into this predicament, the lack of um, criticism of religion publicly. And you're also married to another famous atheist, Dan Barker. Yes, I am. And you have an interesting story about how you met. How did you meet each other? Well, he actually wrote me a letter. I had written a book. My mother had asked me to write a book about Bible sexism. I had a bunch of columns that I had done. Uh, for my feminist newspaper after I read the Bible, and it was turned into the book, Woe to the Women, The Bible Tells Me So, which has been updated and is still available. And he, Dan had just left the ministry. He was an evangelical minister, and he uh, found that book somehow and wrote me a letter. He claims he wrote me a fan letter, but it was really a very um, prosaic letter saying, oh, I liked your book, and I see there's something about the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Can you tell me more? And I was working two jobs and very busy, and I finally turned this letter over to my mother, who asked him to write more about himself. And uh, he, had a, he had a fascinating story of having been an evangelical minister from his teens and having left religion. So uh, the Oprah Winfrey Show had invited my mother and me to be on um, to talk about something we'd started called Christians Anonymous, like mm -hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous. If you wanted to leave religion, call this toll-free number. But Oprah wanted to have somebody who'd been very religious on. And so my mother suggested Dan before we had met him, but she had known his story. So Oprah flew him out from California, and we met for the first time over breakfast just before the show. So we didn't meet on the show. It wasn't that we wouldn't have met eventually, but mm -hmm. we did meet. That was how we happened to meet. And um, and he was a, what he called himself a baby atheist. <laughs> <laughs> he had never met another atheist in person who called themselves an atheist until he met us. <laughs> wow. And we were a little leery, like, well, he was so religious and we don't really know him. And then when the show started, he was so good. Um, you know, we felt like we had met a kindred non-spirit. Wow. Do you still have the letter? I do. You do. <laughs> Might be a, a little mildewed or something. But yes, I do have that letter. That's great. That's great. It should be framed somewhere. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and you've worked together. I mean, for for you know 30 years, the two of you have worked together and worked so well. It's amazing to see that kind of a relationship. Well, we became um, co-presidents after my mother retired. We needed two people to replace her. And so we have a kind of good division of labor and Dan was always the public relations director at FFRF, and he has continued that. And uh, I'm more of the day-to-day, -day, but he's um, he used to be the tech person. Now we have our own IT person and has his uh, special niches that he does um, uh, that I don't do. So it's worked out very well. I recommend it. I think it's a good idea. And I've even been 
interviewed by some journalists who this is a going thing of having two executive directors or co-executive directors running nonprofits. And I think it's a real good idea. I, you know, I've been to your office. I know how hard you work. How do you unwind when you're not working? Or are you able to unwind well and not think about work? Oh, yes. And people are always amazed when we do travel or go on vacation. I kind of incommunicado at that point, unless there's really something I'm looking for, like a contract or something I have to sign. Um, Because I do work long hours here. When I go home, I I do not usually think about work. In the summer, I garden. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Chris, I do like to bake. I do. I've been baking as much because it's just too tempting to eat what you bake. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, um, Dan and I are readers. I'm more fiction. He's more nonfiction. Um, and, uh, And I've been watching some series on Netflix, I have to confess. What have you been watching? Well, I ju- we just finished um, um, Babylon Berlin or Berlin Babylon Babylon Berlin. Uh-huh. Uh, very interesting. It takes place just before Nazis take over, and um, I don't know if it's considered a Weimar Republic in 1929. Uh-huh. C- kind of scary. I was going to say that sounds like something that would kind of worry me watching right now. <laughs> Well, except it was so totally different. It wasn't about Nazis. Oh, okay. But it was about the era. The era was pretty threatening. Yeah, it's really important to be able to, you know, have time not thinking about the work stuff because that just can bog you down and make you go a little crazy. Oh, yeah. And I think that one often gets uh, one's best ideas when you're out walking or doing something totally different or on a vacation in a different city. You need that perspective. What do you see as the future for FFRF? Where would you like to be in 10 years? Well, I think that there's no question that FFRF should, sooner than in 10 years, have at least 50,000 members. You know, the National Organization for Women has over 500,000 members. Um, Or you look at something like the ACLU. And I would be content uh, to make that goal of 50,000. And uh, I'm hoping that we could be 35. I've I've got a modest goal of 35,000 by the end of the year. And we're at 32 now. But, of course, membership retention is is an issue because um, a lot of people try you out for a year. You really, once you have them for the second year, usually you have a long-standing member. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of new members, a big growth, and we have to see if we can retain people. And hopefully they'll see that we are doing so much. And we try to not rest on our laurels. We, we are trying, we end over 250 violations a year through education alone. We have many important ongoing lawsuits we also have public relations campaigns, bus signs and billboards and things like that. Um, we um, commissioned the Dar- Darrow, Clarence Darrow statue last year, which was a big deal for us, um, to put it up at the county courthouse where the Scopes trial happened. And they had p- accepted a statue of William Jennings Bryan, the creationist. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a statue to Clarence Darrow outside the courthouse. And that was a terrible oversight. And so we commissioned this beautiful statue by Zenas Fridakis for posterity, not just for the people of Ray County. And it's going to be there telling the story, the real story for posterity. So as we grow, we're able to do uh, branch out and do some things we never would have been able to do before. That's great. And it's such a wonderful organization. You're doing so much. You're working so hard. 
You have a wonderful staff working for you. We do. We have nine attorneys. We have seven um, kind of permanent attorneys and then two legal fellows. Um, we're, we have an, a small editorial team. Uh, we have, of course, administrative team, and we're starting to get a, a PR team together. So um, we are trying to make a dent in all that 24-7 religion out there and to represent the views of non-believers and people who use reason informing their opinion about religion. And there are, are a lot of us, but we do not get the kind of attention that we deserve. We do not have public officials and politicians wooing us. Nobody's talking about the secular vote. Mm -hmm. They should be. We can swing elections and we, we're going to be doing our we're atheists and we vote campaign this year. There's no reason why there should not be, uh, uh, we should not be affecting social policy and getting our agenda in Congress. There's so much to look forward to in the future with what the work that you guys are doing. It's, it's really important. Well, thank you, Chris. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate having you here. Well, it was very fun to talk to you again, Chris. Sometime we're gonna have to talk more about you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, visit theatheistbook.com.